The Thirteenth Floor, A Ghost Story, by Sid Fleshman. Chapter 2 A Message from Abigail I walked through the house, calling out to the pirate ghost, until I caught sight of myself in the downstairs hall mirror. Buddy, I shouted through the trumpet. Stebbins, you look like a nitwit. You're balmy. You're a nutcake. Your porch light has gone dim. Do you really expect some 300-year-old ghost to hear you? I returned the trumpet to my dad's cabinet. If it were possible to talk to the dead, I ought to have called out to my mom and dad. They had been they had been killed in a small plane crash across the border of Mexico. It was months before Liz broke the news to me that our father, a private dealer in Mexican art, had left a lot of debts. We'll have to pay the money back, Liz said. Sure, I agreed. Of course, positively. How much? Big bucks. How big? Not to worry, buddy. I want to worry, Liz. The money we get for the house will square everything. Can't we just keep selling stuff, I asked. But we're running out of family heirlooms. She gave a little laugh. We may have to sell off your model airplanes next. I hardly missed the old china dishes and silver serving pieces that were never used anyway. But of course, I'd noticed when the dining room table and chairs vanished. I was kind of sorry now that Liz had managed to sell the heavy brass tea kettle. In case, just in case, some spirit tried to talk out of the spout again. Again, ah, uh, it probably never happened in the first place, I reminded myself. The phone rang again, and I thought it must be Liz calling back to remind me to turn on the lawn sprinklers. It was May, and the hot winds were blowing in off the desert, and everything was turning dry as sandpaper. I turned down the sound on Tarzan and said, Me, buddy. It was a girl's voice, a new girl in the drama club at school. How dare you tell everyone I'm stalking you? I swallowed hard. So much for my nutty fantasy. Hello, Garbo, I said. I imagined her flaming hair shooting straight out like something in the, bur in the Bride of Frankenstein, which I'd seen last week. I didn't tell everyone, I protested. And I don't keep calling you up. This is the first time I've ever called you. Would you like to rehearse our parts for the play? I asked boldly. I could understand the drama club's letting her in, but I think the only reason I got past the door was that the school needed someone to play Ichabod Crane in The Headless Horseman, and I was tall and gangly enough. Or we could study together for the rest, for the test in Spanish, I added. It's better to have someone to study with, especially for a test. And I hardly lift weights at all, Garbo said, and slammed down her phone. I felt myself blush. I had never had anyone hang up on me before. It was embarrassing. But she'd become personally aware of me at last. Never before had she taken any more notice than absolutely necessary. 
I turned on the lawn sprinklers before I forgot. Then I went around back to water my mother's roses. I checked the bay to see if there was anything out there. I counted three submarines, gathered like suckling pigs up against a gray navy supply ship. But the big stuff, the aircraft carriers and the cruisers, were out to sea. I could hardly believe it when Garbo called back. At almost 13 years of age, I guessed I was not old enough to understand women. In a voice so sweet, I must have, it must have given her cavities. She asked if I understood how to translate the paragraph on page 162 in our Spanish book. So I changed into my new tennis shoes with their green glow-in-the-dark laces and got my bike out of the garage. I hurried through the lawn sprinklers and raced and raced to her house. We studied together for the test, but her mind seemed to be a million miles away. Light years away, in fact. What's your sign, she asked. I don't know, Saturn, I think. Saturn is not an astrological sign. She figured out that I was Pisces, which didn't seem to please her a great deal. Then she got the newspaper and consulted the astrology column. It said that Pisces should be should beware of birds that flock together. What do you suppose that means? She asked, biting her fingernail. Maybe it means to run for cover when seagulls fly over, I said. That's not funny. I wasn't trying to be funny, I muttered, sounding a lot like Liz. I was only trying to be mildly amusing. She wasn't mildly amused either. It was clear that she took astrology as seriously as appendicitis, and that I'd better change the subject. In addition to the Zodiac, she was heavily into cosmetics. It didn't leave us much to talk about. I found myself sneaking a glance at my digital wristwatch. Do you always wear sunglasses at night, I asked. Of course, she said. I'm studying to be a movie star. By the time I got home, my crush on Garbo was history. There in the entry stood Liz, soaking wet. In long, green pants, she looked like a frog ready to leap at me. Did it rain, I asked, baffled. Yes, two months ago, Liz answered. You merely forgot to turn off the sprinkler. I merely had to beat my way through the rainforest to reach the front door. I may merely murder you. Gasp, I said. I'm sorry, Liz. She broke into a smile. Actually, bud, it's the first time all day I've felt cool. She slipped off her shoes and she got a bath towel to dry off her hair. At first, neither of us noticed that the red light was flashing on the answering machine. When it caught her eye, she crossed over to the table and pressed the playback button. Hark, a girl cried out in an accent straight from England. Is that you? Mistress Stebbins? Is it you who knows the law from here to there and slammed to pieces? Hark, hark, a great calamity is befalling me. Help me, make haste. Mistress to India Street, the Zachary building, to the 13th floor. I'm Abigail Parsons, I, your own relative herself. You'll know me by my best turkey shawl and my starched white bonnet. Don't fail me. The Zachary building, I muttered. 
That's where our great-grandfather had his law office. A clever touch, said Liz, cocking a skeptical look at the answering machine. She suspected fraud and shot her best lawyer's cold-eyed, cross-examining gaze. Confess, buddy. Starched white bonnet. Is this your idea of a practical joke? Who? Whom did you get to do the English voice? One of your friends at school? Garbo? I threw one hand in the air as if I was taking an oath. I confess, Liz, I confess I didn't have anything to do with this. I don't even know what a turkey shawl is. Furthermore, Garbo doesn't do accent. She does eyelashes. In that case, yeah, in that case, Liz, it sounds like some relative wants to hire you. Abigail something or other? I didn't know we had any relatives still alive. We don't, Liz answered, and she's not. This is a put-on, buddy. Who's trying to put us on and why? Therein lies the mystery. Therein? She only began using words like that since law school. How do you know it's a put-on? Liz brushed aside the question as if it were a mere piece of lint. Someone is setting up a simple-minded practical joke. It'll spring the moment I turn up at the Zachary building. What joke? The girl said she'd been waiting on the 13th floor, didn't she? Yep. Buddy, office buildings don't have 13th floors. A lot of people are too superstitious to rent space on a floor with a bad luck number like that. I took a breath and nodded and smiled. Yeah, there's a word for it. Trickster-aid-ca-phobia, said, Liz said as if it were a word she used every 20 minutes. It means fear of the number 13. A lot of cities skip when they number the streets, and they name the offending road something else. See, superstition is alive and well, buddy. I'm positive the elevator in the Zachary building jumps from the 12th floor to the 14th floor. So if you turn up looking for Abigail, the laugh is on you. As laughs go, I'd rate it slightly below a snicker, Liz replied. Maybe it would be one of your crackpot boyfriends. I don't have any crackpot boyfriends. How about the one who claimed to have been kidnapped by a flying saucer for six hours and 18 minutes? Harvey. Ex-boyfriend, said Liz. Don't remind me. Then she dismissed the telephone message with a wave of her hand. And let's forget Abigail. Chapter 3. The 13th Floor Liz left in the morning for her office and didn't come back. After school, I cut the lawn down the street, tossed a few basketballs, and started my homework. It was not unusual for Liz to be late for dinner, but she always gave me a call. I was having a little trouble concentrating on my Spanish, with the final coming up tomorrow. I hadn't done so hot on the last test and needed to make up for it. Finally, I turned on the radio and thought a container of spaghetti sauce my mother had frozen almost a year ago. I heard on the news there was a monster traffic jam along the waterfront. Some truck driver claimed he saw real wet tears dripping from the left eye of a huge movie billboard of Elvis Presley 
People were flocking from all over the country to witness the miracle, or whatever it was. I wondered if Liz had somehow got trapped in all the fuss. I boiled up some pasta and ate alone. When Liz didn't turn up at ten, by 10.30 in the evening, I called the hospitals. Good news, they'd never heard of her. But where was she? Should I call the police? Missing persons? I waited another half hour and called the police. What was she wearing, asked the policewoman. I don't know. I was at school when she left. How tall is she? I didn't know exactly. Kind of tall for a girl, I said. Wait? About average, I guess. It embarrassed me that I couldn't give a better description of my own sister, even though I saw Liz every day. I realize now how little I really looked at her. After all, she was only my sister. Only? She was the only person left alive who really knew I was alive. The officer told me that Liz would probably walk in the door at any moment. It's natural to worry, Sonny, but don't let your imagination run away with you. Is there someone to take care of you? My mind raced ahead to awful possibilities, and I had heard myself shade the truth. Heaps of relatives, ma'am. Don't worry about me. Fine. Check in with us tomorrow, Sonny. All our relatives had been put to rest in the old family record book upstairs in the glass-doored bookcase. There was no one left but the two of us. I missed not having cousins to run to or aunts and uncles. We were alone, Liz and me, just us. And what if I should lose her? For the first time I grasped the hazard I had run in calling the police. I might be able to take care of myself, but to the police I was sunny and not quite 13 years old. Without Liz, I'd be thrown into an orphanage or something. Without her, I was sunk. She was my lifeline. In a sudden panic, I dialed the police again to say Liz had turned up and thanks a lot. But I hung up before the call went through. Dimwit, it's a great time to worry about yourself. Liz could be in major trouble. It might really need the police. It must have been about an hour before daybreak when I jumped out of bed. Could Liz have gone to meet the weird lady with the English voice, Abigail? I ran across the hall to Liz's room. When I heard no sounds of breathing, I snapped on the light. The bed hadn't been touched. Liz was still missing. The only thing out of place was a large book open on her desk. It looked as if she'd been browsing through the family births and deaths going back practically to Adam and Eve. My mom had always called it the Stebbins Death Book. Now, in Liz's own bold handwriting, she and my dad were the latest entries. But Liz hadn't been looking at the last page. She had had the book open practically at the beginning where the old ink had turned as pale as tea stains. The name in the middle of the page jumped out at me. Abigail Parsons, born Northampton, Mass, 1682 seventh child of Mary Bliss and John Parsons, at age 10, tried to be a witch in Boston. Tried as a witch in Boston, 1692.
I didn't have to read any further. I was dead certain that Liz had run down to the Zachary building to check out the voice on the answering machine. Unless someone had stolen a look at the family death book, how could anyone have known we had an ancestor named Abigail? I spotted my tennis shoes glowing in the closet and pulled them on. I threw my Spanish book and some other school stuff into my backpack and jumped on my bike. By the time I reached India Street, dawn was up and the big old windows of the Zachary building were flashing a bonfire red. I was wearing my Walkman radio so I could tune into the all-new station. I wanted to stay in touch with the world just in case a body had been discovered somewhere. The doors were still locked for the night, so I waited around for someone with the keys to show up. I guess the building had once been been the grandest in town when my great-grandfather had kept his office there. Now it was partly boarded up and looked broken down and tuckered out. If it had been a horse, I believe someone would have shot it. To pass time, I listened to some music on my on the Walkman and read the letters on the windows. There was a Bales bondsman, a chiropractor for dogs and cats, and an outfit that bought gold teeth. On the corner, bay windows had a flashing purple neon sign that said, Madame Zortia, Palm Reed, Palms Red, and Fortunes Told, Knows All. Knows All? If she'd been in, I'd have been tempted to ask her what happened to Liz. To save money, I looked at my own palm. After a moment's close study, I came to the startling conclusion there was no way the creases in my hand could have jumped around overnight to clue me in to Liz's disappearance. Wasn't anyone ever going to show up around here? I dug through my stuff. I'd forgotten I'd had a pencil flashlight in my backpack. I shook it, and it still worked. I fished out my pocket-sized tape recorder and listened to myself practicing Spanish pronunciations. Es excelente, es stupendo, es magnifico. Finally, a lanky man wearing a leather bow tie turned up with a jingling ring of brass keys. He opened the doors and I followed him in. After making a quick check of the directory on the wall, I called to him. Don't you have a 13th floor, sir? I asked. He turned with a curious look. For a moment, I thought he might never have been addressed as sir and didn't know how to deal with it. Kid, he said in a friendly drawl, I declare, if you ain't the second person who asked me about that, do we have a 13th floor? Can pigs fly? Someone's playing a joke on you. My heart took a leap. Was the other person a girl, I mean a young woman with large glasses, yesterday afternoon? That's her. What happened then, sir? Did she turn around and leave? She turned around and stepped into the elevator. That's the last I seen of her. Kid, now I gotta go do things. He vanished through the doors and I stepped into the elevator. The inside was a kind of reddish mahogany that must have once been kept varnished and polished. Now the panels were trashed, with names and pierced hearts and initials carved across the wood. There were no buttons to push, but it was self-service. 
There was a frame sign telling you to push the hand lever, lever in the direction of the arrows, forward or back, to the floor you viewed through the small window. I shut the elevator door and pulled the handle back. Sure enough, the elevator began a slow creak upward. I pulled the handle back a bit more, and the elevator rose a little faster. Through the window, hardly as large as a picture frame, I could see the passing numbers on the floors closely paint, clearly painted in white on the wall of the shaft. When I reached the 12th floor, I slowed the elevator to a crawl. I continued upward, inch by inch, not sure what to look for, but before long I saw the number 14 appear in the peep window. The 13th floor wasn't there. I shoved open the door and stepped out to look around. The door closed itself behind me. Liz? There wasn't a soul on the floor. To judge by the posters still clinging to the walls, there must have been an overall factory up here. Before I could get back inside the elevator, it went clattering back down. The guy with the bow tie must have needed it. I waited a few moments and then rang to bring the elevator back up. I got tired of waiting and decided to try the stairs. If somehow Liz had found a way into onto the 13th floor, so would I. I gazed about me carefully, step by step, feeling the walls with my hands. I hoped at any moment to trip a secret spot that would open a secret door. Something, anything, but nothing. When I came out on the landing, I found myself on the 12th floor. I rang for the elevator again. It seemed a month before it finally rumbled back to me. Once more, I put my eye to the peep window to watch, inch by inch, for any change as we crept upward. I saw something. I stopped the elevator and peered hard. Had Liz seen it too? That thin streak of yellow? like light escaping under a door. Was that it? I jumped to the elevator door and pulled it open. There, staring back at me, was the solid, solid wall of the shaft. I returned to the peep window. The light had slipped into view in the very bottom, view at the very bottom, and there it was again. My heart was thundering now, practically drowning out the music in my ears. I tapped the elevator level forward to lower the elevator ever so slightly for a better view. That was light. It was paper thin and smoky yellow. And then it was gone once more. Could it be only a lightning bug in the shaft, I wondered? But we don't have any lightning bugs in San Diego. I'd never actually seen one. And I wasn't seeing one now, I assured myself. The light was back, and I was getting the hang of watching it flashing on and off. I heard someone below, but I had the elevator firmly in place. Maybe I thought I needed to get the light directly centered in the window, like lining up a target in crosshairs. Perhaps it would position the elevator exactly between the two floors. Maybe that was the secret. I nudged the elevator, waiting for the light streak to return, and then gently nudge a little more. 
I had it centered. A brass band was blaring in my ears. I held my breath and opened the elevator door. The solid wall was gone. I had found the 13th floor. I rushed forward into a windy, howling blackness. The elevator clanged shut after me and dropped away. A split second later, I felt the floor heave up under me. I was pitched like a kicked cat into the wall at my left. Earthquake, I thought. I reached out my hands to steady myself. I was smelling a powerful, salty wind. And then the flash of light returned. A square lantern with a flickering candle inside swinging from the ceiling of a nearby room. From the lights and shadows being flung about the room, I saw now that it wasn't an earthquake that had struck me. I had found the 13th floor, and it was a ship at sea.